Hello there, I'm Pastor John. Thank you for joining us today. There are a lot of ways to engage here at Harrisonburg First Church of the Nazarene, but we truly do thank you for listening here. If you haven't heard, we're also on Spotify now with the same great content. For more information about our church, you can check us out on the web at abeaconofhope.org. That's abeaconofhope.org. Please be sure to follow us on Facebook. We're live each Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. And you can find us on Instagram as well. So, why her? Whenever I think about John chapter 4 in this really unlikely interaction, the question is begged, why her? Jesus intervenes in this very unlikely life, changes it drastically, and changes a whole town because of it. Why her? You know, whenever any time that you interact with the Word of God, whether it's in church or at life group or at home, any time you are studying text, your question should always be, why am I hearing or seeing this right now in this moment? Lord, what do you want from me right now? And if that's the question you're asking at this moment, considering John chapter 4, the question has to be, why her? This is the third part of our series that we're calling The Uncomfortable Jesus, and obviously we're going to be in John chapter 4 today for the story of the woman at the well. You have it in the version text. Um, my name is Brian, Brian Charette. For those of you who are new to the church, haven't been around very long, uh, I am Brian. I am a layperson in the church, and every once in a while I have this privilege of filling in for Pastor Adrian, who's away. Uh, my wife Pam and I have been coming to this church for almost 20 years. She is in the nursery at this moment. Our oldest daughter, Suzanne, came here from her childhood and lives and works in northern Virginia. And our youngest daughter you've already met, and that was Aubrey, over at the piano. I always get a reaction when people find out that I'm Aubrey's dad. <laughs> oh, okay, I like you now. Yes. I'm Aubrey Charette's dad for the rest of my life. That's how I'll be known, and I love it. And so let's uh, go back over the first two parts of the series. And part one, Pastor Adrian called Culture War, and it introduced the whole concept undergirding this series, and that is Jesus made people uncomfortable. He stretched our expectations and our prejudices, mainly by the people with whom he associated this man eats with sinners. He makes me very uncomfortable. He breaks our societal rules. You know, by definition, of course, if Jesus calls you out of your comfort zone, the result of that is to be uncomfortable. And that's what this series is about. It, it's really the theme of the gospel. And Pastor Adrian was teaching about the culture war, the fact that we don't live in a Christian society and that all the things around us, many of the things around us, will run counter and that indeed there is a culture war. The challenge is, what do we do about it? How to respond? This is Pastor Adrian from part one. 
The entire New Testament is full of people that lived in a world and a culture that was uh, not for the gospel. That was against. They lived in a world that was increasingly dark. They lived in a world that deliberately opposed their worldview. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. So we act surprised sometimes. We act surprised that the world around us doesn't love the same God that we do. We act surprised sometimes that the world around us doesn't have some of the values and things we do. Welcome to the club. This is the gospel. Are are you kidding me? Uh, I mean, men and women that gave their lives for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because they lived in a world that opposed Jesus. They lived in a world that opposed their... And sometimes we get so afraid, and sometimes this culture war around us, that the only way we know how to function is that we draw the lines, and then we sit comfortably in our boundaries. And we come to church, and we worship, and we might get... We might look, but no, I can't do that. I got to... I got to only be with my people and my, and Jesus came to oppose that. He came to, that is hypocrisy. That's religion. And Jesus came, not just, his goal wasn't to make you uncomfortable, but to challenge complacency and to let us know that the love of God crosses barriers. The love of God tears down boundaries. The love of God does not build walls up, but tears them down. We may not, we may not give in to sin, but oh man, As believers, we cannot give up on love. We may not give in to sin, but we cannot give up on love. That's become kind of an anthem for the series. And then last week, part two, tax collectors and sinners. The idea here is that when we cross our boundaries of expectation or prejudices or unacceptability and reach people with this spirit of welcome, we really empower them. We really are used by the Lord for them to be part of the process of their discovery of their own calling and purpose. And so this brings us to part three, which focuses, of course, on the woman at the well. Now, if we can characterize the theme of this series this way, Jesus calls us out of our comfort zones and across boundaries to build relationships in His name with people whom we might otherwise consider unacceptable. If you take that as a theme, the woman at the well is an exclamation point. And I'll tell you why. There is no interaction in the New Testament like the interaction in John chapter 4. It doesn't happen. It is the, that's not hyperbole. That's the way it is. There is no interaction like that. It's kind of like It's kind of like Jesus comes and sits at this well at this moment and he looks into the future, into us in 2019. And he says, hey, people in 2019, watch this. It was stark, it was unique, it was something that hadn't happened before and it was completely on purpose. John 4, verse 3. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, we had to go through Samaria, so we came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Now, you could stop reading right there and get a great deal of the meaning that's intended in this text. Just stop there. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. 
If Jesus reached to the marginalized, if Jesus associated with outsiders, this woman is the outsider of outsiders. Let's break it down. Let's start with the fact that she is a woman. Jesus is about to have a in-public, meaningful, one-on-one conversation with a woman. Now, that's nothing to us. But in first-century rabbinic tradition, it was shocking. Uh, One New Testament scholar writes, The first-century rabbinic precept ran, Let no one talk with a woman in the street. No, not with his own wife. The rabbis so despised women and so thought them incapable of receiving any real teaching that they said, Better that the words of the law should be burned than delivered to women. They had a saying, Each time that a man prolongs converse with a woman, he causes evil to himself and desists from law and in the end inherits hell. By rabbinic standards, Jesus could hardly have done a more shatteringly unconventional thing than talk to this woman. Here is our Lord obliterating barriers. Now, husbands, I do not recommend you try this. Honey, do these blinds look like the right color? O woman, I silence thee. Thou shalt not address me hither in this Home Depot. I will speak to you maybe at its home. Don't do that. If you do it, you'll need to do two things. One, you'll need to apologize. And two, you'll need to get some ice for the side of your head. (laughs) But that's the way it was in the first century. The problem is she isn't just a woman. She's a Samaritan woman. Now, uh, Pastor Adrian began to address some of that in part one. It's a long story, but Jews hated Samaritans. It goes back to 722 B.C. when the northern kingdom of Israel was captured and the Jews, who would become the Samaritans, let themselves be polluted by pagans. So Jews saw Samaritans as either cowards or traitors or both. For a Jew in the first century, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. It's interesting, that's the only kind of Samaritan we know. But for them, you didn't associate. You just didn't. They were unclean in every way and unacceptable in every way. So she's a woman and she's a Samaritan, but it's, it's worse than that. You know the whole conversation about the husband, right? Go get your husband and bring him back. And she says, uh, I don't have a husband. And she said, that's right, you've had five, and we're not even going to address the guy you're with now. There's no doubt that this woman was known in town. And I mean that in the worst possible way. She had a reputation. It was deserved. She had it. One way you know is that she's getting water at noon in the heat of the day. That's not when, that's not when women went to get water. They went at dawn and at dusk. They gathered at the well and they got water. And I'm guessing that over time she just got tired 
of the headache. I bet they were very sure to remind her exactly who she was and who she was not. She was, she was an outcast. So she avoided the crowd, went to the well when no one else would be there, middle of the day. Just want to be left alone. You know, there's something about that whole idea of being an outcast. You know, she's a woman, she's a Samaritan. She's not just rejectable to Jews. Her own people didn't even want her. It's interesting, I learned about the term outcast as it relates to religion when I was a kid. Uh, some of you know my story, know that I was raised a very nominal Roman Catholic in, in New England. I'm from Massachusetts and everybody's Catholic up there. And My mom was raised a Roman Catholic and she has told the story many times about her first communion. When we grew up, we were, you know, lower middle class was a reach for us. When my mom grew up, they were just plain poor. And so for the first communion, you were to wear a fancy dress. And so I'm not sure how they got this dress. I know they couldn't afford to buy one. It was probably borrowed or handed down in some way, but it was sleeveless. And my mother tells the story about all the girls lining up outside St. Margaret Mary Parish in Worcester, Massachusetts. They all lined up, ready to go into church, and they were sort of inspected by the nuns. And one nun came up to my mom and was just flabbergasted. No little girl will go in my church wearing a sleeveless dress. And she berated my seven-year-old mother in front of everybody and called her out of the line. My mom remembered that. My mom remembers that today, and she's 86. Something about being an outcast, it'll scar you. And you'll do everything you can to avoid that kind of pain, even if it means you go to the well in the middle of the day. So she goes by herself to get water. She's sure no one else will be there, except this time there was someone. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Now, I'm not going to comment on why it would take 12 men to go on a lunch run. I'm not going to ask why you would leave the Savior of the world by himself so all of you could go get lunch. You know, was it, did they make a mistake? Well, Peter, you got the wrong topping last time. I don't trust you. You know I'm lactose intolerant. I'm going into town. You got the wrong sub. I hate onions. I'm going too. And so all 12 of them. And Jesus, hey. Actually, I think um, that was intentional. If, I, if you allow me to read between the lines, I think if they'd stayed with him, I don't think they would have allowed him to have a conversation with the woman. So I think that was very intentional on his part. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, it's likely you have that last sentence in parentheses. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Why is it in parentheses? I think it's accurate in parentheses. Think about who says it. It's not Jesus saying it. He doesn't break the fourth wall in the middle of the story and turn to us and say that. It's not the woman who says it. 
John says it to us. John sticks that in there as if to say, hey, Greeks reading in the first and second century, hey, people in 2019, this just did not happen. Pay attention. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. You know what I thought of when I first read that? What if John were running the parentheses in my life? What if John put a parentheses and said, for Brian does not associate with... Would there be anything to put in the blank? For Brian does not associate with... What about you? Would there be something to put in the blank? Would there be a parentheses in your life? I wonder who, I wonder who your woman at the well is. I wonder who, what outcasts are in your life. The first thing I think about is our students. Now, I'm specific, middle school, high school, college. I know what it's like to be an outcast and be a student, but I think of you and I, here's what I hope. I'm an educator, I teach at JMU. My wife is an educator, she teaches as well. Our daughter Aubrey is in youth ministry here and it matters to me and I'll tell you what I hope. I hope the students in this room every day when you get up and head to school, I hope you say, there aren't gonna be any outcasts on my watch. No outcasts today. I hope the students, and I believe this is true, I hope the students in our church have the courage to override comfort. Because if you've been to school lately, and some of you are in school, there's plenty of outcast material, plenty who are rejected, plenty who are measured as not up to the standard. What will you do about them? I hope you'll say, not on my watch. Who's the woman at the well at your work? Who's the woman of the well in your neighborhood? I think that's why this story exists. I think that's why we're being challenged by it. And most importantly, what does it say in this moment that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, Savior of the world sits down with this woman and reveals himself to her. I'd like to, um, to wrap up or head to wrapping up. I'd like to suggest three handles to this sermon series on the uncomfortable Jesus. And I'm particularly thinking about Pastor Adrian's call. We cannot give in to sin, but we must not give up on love. I'm thinking of that, and I'd like to suggest three practical handles to think about that. So that's where we're going uh, from here. So number one, it's not about the crowd, it's about the one. It's not about a classification of people, it's about the soul of a person. I've been talking to people, I've actually been talking to people in the congregation as the sermon series is going on, because I knew I was up for part three, and I'm really interested in how you're responding to it. And I even talked to some um, friends who are believers but don't go to this church about the whole idea. And oftentimes in the conversation, it's about 
a group or class of people. Does Pastor Adrian really expect me to love them? Would Jesus, if he were alive today, actually reach them? Do you expect me to ignore all this stuff about them and build a relationship with them? We tend to think in classes or groups because we like putting people in classes. We like putting people in categories that make us comfortable and that line up with our own expectations. That's not what Jesus did. Many, many times, it was one person at a time. It was the rich young ruler. It was Matthew, the taxpayer. It was the woman caught in adultery. It was Zacchaeus. It was Nicodemus. It was the woman at the well, one at a time. You know, it's interesting. If you read John 4, 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And what I've always found interesting is, why didn't Jesus just go into town? Well, the boys were at Taco Bell, get up on a stand in the town square and preach. Wouldn't that be a more efficient use of time? He did that. Why not here? Why do it this way? Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of that woman's testimony. We think about the crowd, the group, and Jesus is saying, who's the next one in your path? Who's the next individual today? That's what I want you to worry about. I don't know if you know these two guys. The one on the left is Dan Cathy president and COO of Chick-fil-A. The one on the right is Shane Windmeyer, leader of a very well-known LGBT group. They are friends. They're unlikely friends, but friends. This article in the Huffington Post, which I understand is not the most reliable source, uh, Shane Windmeyer is writing, and you'll see up above, nationally recognized LGBTQ leader in higher education, best-selling author, executive director of Campus Pride, and I'm reading from this third paragraph, which I know you can't see. For many, this news of a friendship might be shocking. After all, I am an out 40-year-old gay man and lifelong activist for equality. I am also the founder and executive director of Campus Pride, the leading national organization for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and ally college students. Just seven months ago, our organization advanced a national campaign against Chick-fil-A for the millions of dollars it donated to anti-LGBT organizations. Eric Metaxas writes this about the relationship. Dan Cathy, Chick-fil-A president and chief operating officer, has publicly stated his support for the biblical definition of marriage. And the company's foundation in the past has supported Christian organizations such as Exodus International and Focus on the Family that have taken faith-based stances on human sexuality. A few years ago, Kathy reached out to Shane Winmeyer, who was organizing a national boycott of Chick-fil-A as the executive director of Campus Pride, an organization for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender college students. Before they met, 
Winmeyer thought Dan Cathy was a fiend. What he discovered after months of discussion was that Dan had become a friend, and his mind began to open. Throughout the conversations, Dan expressed a sincere interest in my life, Winmeyer wrote in an eye-opening article in the Huffington Post. He wanted to get to know me on a personal level. He wanted to know about where I grew up, my faith, my family, even my husband Tommy. In return, I learned about his wife and kids and gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ and his commitment to being a follower of Christ more than a Christian. Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A. At the same time, he didn't apologize for his genuine beliefs about marriage. We remain friends. Dan Cathy, I guess, could have done a lot of things. He could have written a letter to the editor about how wrong the protesters were, and if you only knew the heart of Chick-fil-A, Dan Cathy could have banished protesters from his property. He could have reacted angrily with sound bites all over the news channels. He could have made a speech, but he made a friend. One. One friend. So I guess the question is, who is who's your shame? Who's your woman at the well? I think Jesus' call is to one. Next, carry the promise with you wherever you go. Don't let it fade from your life. John 4, 13, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Eternal life. I mean, I know you've heard it before, but eternal life. If that doesn't, if that's just another term, then fresh up. Eternal life. That's what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting may that concept never make you bored. May you never grow weary in thinking about it. May it be part of the way you live. May the promise be real and sure to you because it changes everything. It's the way your neighborhood will be changed. It's the way our community will be changed. It's the way the world will be changed. Jesus' conversations tend to turn on that promise. And it did this time. I think it's interesting. We get a cool little detail from John. If there's any wonder about whether this woman grasped this promise, John gives it to us in a throwaway line in 428. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. The whole reason she came. But there was something more important. There was something better. I guess what I'm suggesting is, may it never be true in your life that this is more important than this. 
that's remembering the promise. The promise isn't going to break if you mishandle it. The promise isn't going to shatter on the floor if the other person doesn't receive it. Jesus is not going to be worried if you don't use all the right words. He's not going to be nervous and biting his fingernails. The promise is not something that you withhold from the unworthy. It's the power of God into salvation. He made sure it was part of this conversation. What about you? Don't forget the promise. May it never become old hat to you. Trite. A well springing up in you that will lead to eternal life. I hope it matters as much to us today as it mattered to them and certainly to her in that moment. Third, last, the love that reaches out is the love that reached you. Let me say this pretty clearly. We think Jesus crossed this great expanse to get to this woman because she was a woman and a Samaritan and an outcast and as far from God as you can be. She wasn't farther than I was. She wasn't farther than you were. The love required to rescue you was of equal volume. Don't see yourself as somehow different or better than this woman. But that's the best news I can give you. That it's about love, how big it is. Remember a page earlier, you're in John chapter 4, flip a page back and we get John 3.16, the ultimate statement about the love of God, so loving the world that he gave his only son. Flip the page, Nicodemus, woman at the well. It's really a story of love. I don't know, I don't know where you see yourself in the story with the woman of the well. I don't know if you relate to Jesus, I don't know if you relate to the guys who went to get pizza. I don't know if you relate to the townspeople. Don't know, but I'll tell you, woman at the well makes sense to me, for me. I can easily imagine myself in those early days asking Jesus, what are you doing talking to me? I can easily imagine doing that. I asked some women I respect, I asked them the question, how do you think women perceive the woman at the well perhaps differently than men do? I don't know that there's a difference, but I was curious to know if, if women read the story with different lenses than men do. And I got great responses, and I want to share Pastor Margaret's with you. She writes, it's a little hard for me to answer because I was the woman at the well. The wedding ring came later in life. I had a religious community Watch me live that brokenness out. Praise God, this is my past and not my present. Maybe that's more information than you wanted. Yes, they are perceived differently, but both perceptions can be judging for really different reasons and not loving. I knew men and women in those days that were true believers, and they treated me with the love of Jesus. That's why I'm so passionate about loving people where they are. Because I was there, and Jesus came to me through believers. And he loved me when I was unlovable. And I have to say that my testimony is, the time in my life when love was most impactful was when I knew I was unlovable. 
I don't think Jesus reaches out to the marginalized to make us uncomfortable. I don't think he tries to break our expectations and our prejudice to make us uncomfortable. I think he does it to show how high and how wide and how deep his love is. Why her? Because I think that was one really good way to show that. This is how far love goes. Real love. I'm going I'm to put a parenthesis in my own sermon. Notice me walking out here to make a point. I don't know what the point is, but I'm walking out here. I want to stop the message and put a parenthesis and talk to you as a congregation. For a long time, this church, we had um, Pastor Kerry Willis as our pastor, 24 years. A wonderful man. Uh, we're blessed to have known him. We're blessed to have followed his leadership. He showed us about Jesus. He's a wonderful friend of mine, and I'm grateful for him. And then last year, if you're new to the church, last year, Pastor Kerry became a district superintendent up in the Philadelphia area. And by the tremendous providence and grace of God, Pastor Adrian Mills agreed to be our lead pastor. We hit the jackpot twice. Adrian Mills is a strong, godly young man, and we are blessed that he's our pastor. And I want to make this comment because I've been listening to Pastor Adrian in my role and hearing and taking notes, and I want you to know that this content that we've been hearing, really since January, remember when he did the Alive Church series, and now this content on the uncomfortable Jesus is right out of his heart. He says, I don't really want to make the congregation uncomfortable, but I want them to understand the love of God. I love this church, he tells me over and over again, and I cannot believe I'm the lead pastor. And I know that we reach out, and I know that we're in the community, but I never want us to get complacent. 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, if Jesus hasn't come back, I want us to be even more impactful than we are now. And so I think it's challenging for Adrian to sort of lay this out in front of you. That's challenging, but I have to say, uh, because I'm in a good position to say it and he really can't, you guys have been wonderful in listening and learning and leaning in and loving him and accepting this as his vision and saying to him, I'm with you. And I know as a friend of his, I appreciate that, and he can't really say it. None of the other pastors can say it, and I'm not a pastor, so I can put a parenthesis in the message and say, thank you. Don't cease encouraging that young man as he leads us. Close parentheses. Moving back. Lastly, I was looking for some kind of closing thing. How would you take these ideas and characterize them just in a very short way. What's the heart of what we're talking about in this series? And I think I found it uh, in a little boy in Alabama. He's faster than a speeding stroller, more adorable than a wet kitten, and able to get a stranger's attention with a single courtesy. Excuse me? This is America's latest superhero. Don't forget to show love. And the only superhero with the power to feed the homeless. Now, why do you do that? You know what, Mrs. B? It's just the right thing to do. Is it? Yes. 
You want honey? By day, Austin Pirine is a mild-mannered four-year-old from Birmingham, Alabama. But about once a week, he turns into this alter ego. Would you like a sandwich? A superhero set on feeding as many homeless people as possible. Thank you. What's your superhero name? President Austin. Uh huh. President Austin. President Austin. President Austin. That's his idea of what the president is supposed to do. I was like, buddy, you have no idea. <laughs> but hey, I'm going along with it. TJ says this all began when they were watching a TV show about pandas. It showed a mama panda abandoning a baby. TJ told his son the cub was now homeless. He says, what's homeless? I said, well, it's when you don't have a home and sometimes you don't have mom or dad around. I can tell what the follow-up question is going to be. Yeah, are people homeless? When I was a four-year-old, I didn't care about helping people. I did. I see. Once Austin learned some people are homeless and some are even hungry, he launched this caped crusade. Told his mom and dad that he wanted all his allowance and money they would spend on toys to go toward chicken sandwiches instead. Oh, thank you, baby. You're welcome. Don't forget to show up. After he gives out each sandwich, yes. he gives each person that same bit of advice. Don't forget to show love. Don't forget to show love, he tells them. And most do, immediately. Well, thank you. It warms my heart to see him. It don't warm anyone's heart. Yeah, he really did, man. Raymond Boss says this kid gives him hope. That's, that's, that's where it starts. Don't forget to show love. Everyone who meets Austin leaves with hope. Which is why, with any luck, someday President Austin won't be a superhero anymore. Being the homeless is the highlight of my life. He'll just be a president. All right, come on, Austin. Steve Hartman, on the road, in Birmingham, Alabama. The series doesn't conclude this week, part four is next week. But if I were to summarize it all, the culture war, tax collectors and sinners, this strange encounter with the woman at the well, the idea of we must not give in to sin, but we cannot give in to love. If I were going to summarize that, I think I'm pretty happy with don't forget to show love as the last word. Thanks again for listening here today. If you enjoyed it and want to engage more, you can subscribe to this podcast through our website, abeaconofhope.org. That's abeaconofhope.org. Or if you're a Spotify user like me, you can search for us there and subscribe directly there as well. If you happen to be anywhere in the Shenandoah Valley here in Virginia, we'd love for you to join us at 1871 Boyers Road, Rockingham, Virginia. We meet each Sunday morning at 9 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and then again at 11.45 a.m. in Spanish. Celebrate Recovery also meets here each and every Monday night at 6 p.m. Thanks again, and we look forward to meeting you soon.